welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a podcast for the soul and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today I'm joined by a wonderful guest. I'm really excited about this dialogue and interview. It's Rick Strassman. A lot of you already know who Rick Strassman is, but I will give you the basics. He is a native of Los Angeles. He obtained his undergraduate degree in biological sciences from Stanford University and his medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University. He trained in general psychiatry at UC Davis in Sacramento and took a clinical psychopharmacology research fellowship at UC San Diego. Joining the faculty at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine in 1984, his clinical research with melatonin discovered its first known function in humans. Between 1990 and 1995, he performed the first new U.S. clinical research with psychedelic drugs in a generation. His studies involved DMT and, to a lesser extent, psilocybin, and received federal and private funding. From 1995 to 2008, he practiced general psychiatry in the community, mental health, and private sectors. He has authored or co-authored nearly 50 peer-reviewed papers, has served as guest editor and reviewer for numerous scientific journals, and consulted to various government, nonprofit, and for-profit entities. His book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, released in 2001, has sold 250,000 copies and been translated into 14 languages and is the basis of a successful independent documentary that he co-produced. In 2008, he co-authored Inner Paths to Outer Space. He has also written DMT and the Soul of Prophecy in 2014 and his first novel, Joseph Levy Escapes Death, which appeared in 2019. Dr. Strassman is currently adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at the UNM School of Medicine and lives in Gallup, New Mexico, near the Navajo Reservation there. Rick, great to have you here, my friend. Uh, thanks, Nikos. Thanks for having me on. And the thing that's not in the bio, which will soon be edited, I'm sure, is that you have a new book coming out. And we were just talking a little bit about that. What's it called? Right, right. I should put that in my short bio. Um, it's called The Psychedelic Handbook, and it's for the psychedelically naive but curious. And uh, it's by Ulysses Press. It's already on Amazon for sale. It's doing pretty well, actually, even uh, you know, better than the rest of my books other than the DMT one. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to come out in June, uh, third week in June or so. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, is the handbook... Um what I have read most recently, and what I hope we, we can talk about a little bit, is uh, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. Um, one of the things that I've just found so interesting is that as a philosopher, <clears throat> a lot of what you're saying there, that we need training to make better use of these experiences and to make them more, uh, as you put it, informationally rich, we could say, you know, uh, um, juicier on the message and uh, that, that on par with the aesthetics of the experience, as you put it. Um, uh, do you draw from that perspective in this handbook? Um, yeah, yeah, um, I do repeatedly, actually. Um, you know, it isn't a starry-eyed account of, uh, you know, by an author who's dropped acid a couple of times and is a self-proclaimed expert. 
Um, you know, I'm uh, really kind of uh, keeping it as grounded as I can. Um, and uh, uh, I emphasize repeatedly the importance of the set and the setting in ultimately determining the outcome of any psychedelic experience. Um, I you know, disabuse repeatedly the notion drugs have inherent anything other than the ability to be uh, you know, psychedelic, which is mind manifesting or mind disclosing. You know, so the nature of the mind is what determines the nature of the experience. You know, so the better equipped you are to extract information from the experience, um, you know, the more you'll get out of it. And, uh, you know, the less uh, you know, trouble or adverse effects uh, are likely uh, if you're prepared uh, for what might happen uh, and also to make you know, the most of any uh, you know, particular session. Yeah, that seems to be such an important theme in general in our culture because we're seeing, for instance, people are, I don't know, maybe it's a, it's always been a problem. I suspect it has been because in a lot of traditions, uh, you couldn't just go to a teacher and just demand some kind of advanced uh, meditation teachings without making ethical commitments and, 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 and so on. But uh, you can see there's something about the need to study that we're, um, uh, maybe you know uh, uh, Willoughby Britton's Dark Night of the Soul project. Oh. Now, she's a researcher who has been looking at the negative experiences that people sometimes have just with meditation. I'm not sure if, if uh, any psychedelic users have contacted her, I don't recall. But, um, you know, people are having negative experiences just by, by doing too much meditation with not enough education and foundation. Yes. Um, well, the point that I, I you know, try to make is, uh, is, you know, the importance of, of study. Uh, you know, to develop um, a cognitive you know, platform and scaffolding uh, to understand what's going on. Um, and also, um, well, you know, one of the inspirations for, you know, for the prophecy book uh, was Maimonides, uh, a Jewish philosopher and physician in Egypt back in the 1200s. Um, and, you know, Maimonides, um, you know, uh, spoke about you know the mechanisms of becoming a prophet, um, and those two mechanisms were the development of the imagination, um, which you know, technically speaking is you know the aesthetic uh, you know nature of existence, you know the perceptions, um, you know the sensations, the emotions. You know the bodily uh, effects and you know, so on, which I think you know the psychedelics stimulate. You, you know, but he also emphasized the importance of developing the intellect or you know the rational faculty of Aristotle, and you know the two ways in which one did that were study and the practice of a virtuous life. You know, because uh, you know the practice of a you know virtuous life. Um, establishes a groundwork or a framework, you know, for interacting with things, um, you know, kindly, compassionately, courageously, those kinds of, uh, you know, qualities. You know, so those come in handy when you're confronted with, you know, the contents of the imagination being so stimulated from either, you know, meditation or other technologies or psychedelics. 
Yeah, I, that's such a, a clear message in many philosophical traditions, and certainly that's a place too where I think the, the Buddhist philosophy can be helpful, and uh, also ancient Greek philosophy. But this idea that first and foremost you need to be living an ethical life, and then there is some study you have to actually correct your your uh, your bad beliefs and limiting views that if you hold on to them could make those experiences difficult. They could create difficulties for you by having just views that are not. Um, uh, you could say skillful and realistic enough. Yeah, and and uh, your study also involves you know learning new things. You know, so if for example, uh, you may have been only aware of one name for God, which only characterizes you know one particular aspect. You know, if you learn what the different names of God are, you could then recognize those in your psychedelic or prophetic or any other kind of experience, and. Um, you know, by recognizing, you know, what you're dealing with, you know, based on you know, words and you know, terms that you've learned, uh, you can, I think, get, you know, more out of the experience. You can interact with it more, you know, fulsomely in your greater detail. Um, you know, the other, uh, you know, one other um, advantage or, you know, boon from a virtuous life or an ethical life or, you know, even through study is you know that you do not degrade your imaginative faculty through a you know dissipated lifestyle. Um, you know the imagination, uh, according to the philosophers, you know, was a physical uh, uh, you know function and was you know located in the brain. Uh, you know so you know to the extent you know that you can at least you know, maintain the health of the brain, um, uh, you'd be. Uh, you'd be more you know, capable of uh, experiencing a clear apprehension of what the imagination brings forth uh, in altered states. Yeah, that's really interesting, that taking care of, of our well-being and vitality. Uh, you know, in the West, uh, you're talking about Jewish philosophers, but in the sort of dominant culture tradition out of the Greeks, it's Nietzsche who really is so fascinated with health and what it, what its effects are on our, our, our sensitivities. But uh, yeah, it's also interesting that in some of these traditions, these mystics, uh, say, for instance, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, again, to use that as an example, that the the uh, monks, the advanced monks were expected to be healers, too. They were expected to know how to take care of the vitality of the body in various ways. And so you had a rich medical tradition that grew out of that, too. But uh, yeah, that's really interesting. And so now, do you, uh, is the framework in your new handbook, does it uh, explicitly reference the, the uh, Judaic tradition or the Abrahamic traditions or? Um, you know, not, you know, Judaism you know, per se. Um, I referred, you know, uh, well, I've got uh, one you know, chapter in there on uh, you know, how psychedelics work, uh, the mind. And, um, you know, toward the end of that, you know, chapter, I ask, you know, you know my readers, um, you know, to indulge me in a, you know, foray into, you know, into medieval metaphysics. Uh, and I introduce Aristotle and, you know, the rational faculty and the, and the imaginative faculty. And I explain, you know, kind of what, you know, we were just talking about, you know, that you can divide, you know, the mind in, to two basic functions and uh, you know one 
is uh, stimulated by you know psychedelics, you know the imaginative one, you know, but it um, requires at you know, the same time you know the development of the intellect through study and a virtuous life. Um, you know, I never mention Abraham or Moses or the Ten Commandments or anything like that. You know, but I do you know mention you know Judaism as. Uh, you know, being a target of you know, progressive liberal psychedelicists um, as being, you know, too particularistic. Um, and, you know, for that reason is in the crosshairs of those who advocate for a mystical unitive state as opposed to what I call an interactive relational one. Um, you know, the manifesto of, you know, that, uh, you know, what I like to call, you know, the psychedelic religion of mystical consciousness is what has been coming out of you know Hopkins and you know, the main purveyor of you know that philosophy is Bill Richards, uh, and if you read his book uh, you know Sacred Knowledge, he excoriates the Jewish tradition, um, and he excoriates prophecy. He you know calls it you know the foothills as compared to the mystical state which is you know formless and universalistic, you know which is on the apex, it's on the mountaintops, and I do refer to that you know, to that notion and um, how, you know, Jewish you know, belief uh, is uh, in opposition uh, you know, to that model. You know, the notion, you know, that there is a universal religious experience underlying all the major traditions, but that's not true, even though that's you know, kind of promulgated by, you know, the psychedelic school of mystical consciousness. Um you know the uh, you know Jewish prophetic tradition is interactive and relational. There's not you know one single mystical experience of unity, of you know ego dissolution, of the white light. There are just you know um, the um, you know there are no examples of that in the entire Hebrew Bible. You know, so I do you know, point that out as number one, excluding a whole you know range of you know, psychedelic experiences, which could be quite useful. Um, and uh, I also um, I, you know point out you know to the uh, you know theological assumptions, which are you know fundamentally you know Christian um, in uh, in opposing you know the Jewish. Uh, uh, you know, tradition, uh, you, you know, like the, you know, standard canard against, you know, the, uh, you know, Judaism is it's fleshy, it's corporeal, it's, um, you know, bitten, it's uh, inextricably tied to the law, which kills, uh, you know, all those you know, kind of ideas. And, uh, you know, Bill, you know, Bill Richards is, uh, you know, continuing in that tradition, uh, you know, using uh, in the psychedelic platform to justify it. Huh. Well, there is a space, of course, in the um, in the Jewish mystical traditions, as far as I understand, because this is not a, a, a strong part of my own scholarly background as a philosopher. I mean, I did have a few. I had one philosopher in particular who was a big fan of Maimonides and a few others who were um, who worked in the Jewish tradition. But it was it's never been a focus of study. But I I do seem to. Uh, recall readings um, about the idea of of a, a mystical union with the divine, but a sense in which one you could say it's it's kind of similar to, to the Buddhist idea of uh, 
the because it, the Buddhist view is, of course, that things are that union would not be some kind of you know unitive state is not the that's not Buddhahood because you have to maintain the uh, the duality also. So in the same sense, the the Jewish mystics that that I can recall, there was a sense that of possibility of union with God that nevertheless maintained the the relationality. Like in the same way that there, mm-hmm. I know it sounds paradoxical, but is, isn't that the case that there is that that experience is available to the Jewish mystic? Uh, not to the Jewish prophet. No, no, not uh, the not the prophet, of course, because of, sometimes in these traditions the mystics are are also doing things. But I'm just talking about in terms of the general uh, feeling that a person could have a state uh, mystical experiences that were not just the, the prophetic ones. That you could have this experience of of union and yet relationality. Well, I mean, one could argue that that's not Judaism. You know, that's okay. you know, borrowed from other traditions, like from you know, Gnosticism, uh, from the Christian mystics, uh-huh. from the Eastern religions. You know, that it's an accretion onto the fundamental beliefs and fundamental tradition, uh, which is you know rooted in the. Uh, in you know, the Hebrew Bible, you know, I've been you know, criticized that I talk about Kabbalah, or Zohar, or Hasidut, those kinds of things, and uh, you know, that's a conscious decision on my part just to stick with you know the basics, because you know, most people who you know, say, oh, you should talk more about Kabbalah or Hasidut, I say, have you read the Bible? Uh, and most people haven't that yeah. carefully who uh, promote Kabbalah and Hasidut. Yeah. Uh, or it's just was, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, that's just arithmetic. Uh, that's not algebra or geometry or, or uh, you know, calculus. I see. You know, but still, it's kind of like you can't really, you know, go on to the next stage until you've mastered the, you know, the preliminaries. Right. Um, and um, I mean, I'm not a rabbi. I don't have a, you know, doctorate in, you know, Jewish studies, um, you know, so I've been, you know, free to uh, just, you know, look into what interests me. And, you know, what interests me is, you know, the Hebrew Bible uh, and, you know, the prophetic experience um, and the information which is conveyed, you know, through the prophetic experience, which I think is much more concrete, verbal, cognitive, constrained, you know, restrained than, union with god you know, union with god i mean what does that mean exactly and you know how do you live your life you know how do you make decisions right um in you know bill's book you know bill richard's book uh you know he addresses that and he says you know if you can't make a decision or you're you know kind of stuck between a you know rock and a hard place you know, re-enter the state of mystical consciousness, which means what? Take more psychedelics, um, as opposed, you know, to be able to refer to a text, which is quite concrete. You know, uh, you know, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. You know, don't move the boundary markers of your neighbor. You know, fundamentally, it's you know, love your fellow as yourself and believe and you know, serve only one God, and. You know, those are ideas, you know, those are concepts, you know, those are words which are both, you know, beliefs and, you know, guidelines for action, um, which I think for, you know, most of us <laughs> are useful uh, as opposed to just, you know, entering into the white light and then coming down and, you know, trying to understand what that means. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and this too, you're, you're, there's the issue of needing to have training to know what what it is, because otherwise, yeah, you're kind of, uh, you're blanking yourself out probably. I mean, a lot of these experiences seem to, the way I sometimes put it is that um, we, we practice not metabolizing our experiences, you know, like, you know, for instance, the studies that indicate we mind wander maybe roughly half the time, you know, okay. So there's a practice of not metabolizing experience. If the experience is really, really uh, negative and we don't metabolize it, but we refer to that as PTSD. If a per- experience, though, feels, if, if it's, its sort of sensation quality is positive, but we don't metabolize it, we usually call those mystical experiences. But the issue is that they aren't, you're, you're, what you're saying is that we haven't actually gotten information that seems to be useful for the whole community and really can give us guidance that we feel like, okay, I know what to do. Whereas the, there's something about the prophetic experience, or you could say a more advanced uh, mystical training that could, that would do that for us. Well, I mean, even in the you know, case of advanced mystical, uh, you know, training, you know, where the emphasis is on union and ego dissolution and you know whatnot, you, uh, you know, that's not the goal of the of the practice. You know, that's just a confirmation of what you've been studying. Um, you know, like my uh, you know Zen teacher used to say, the first kensho is the beginning of your training. Yeah. Um, it isn't the end of your training. Oh, of course. You know, now the hard part, uh, you know, begins, you need to, you know, apply what you've learned within the confines of what you've, well, you have to apply what you've experienced within the confines of what you've learned, you know, so, uh, to, you know, give a drug to have a white light experience and then to say, okay, you know, that's, you know, that's the goal. I've attained the goal. Um, I, I think is a bit, you know, backwards. Um, it, um, ideally, if it were a you know, true, you know, religious or spiritual experience would occur within a, a context. Um, they wouldn't just be, uh, you know, 10 to 12 hours of, you know, preparatory indoctrination. Um, it would be, you'd be in a group of believers, you'd be studying the text, you would be disciplining yourself to a teacher, um, you'd be hearing about uh, the stages of development. You would have an experience which would be a you know, confirmation, you know, like a you know, signpost, as it were, like, okay, you're on the right path, um, and you know, then continue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. We we do. It, this is a fragmenting culture because you know it's so it's fragmented and fragmenting. And yeah, we think that we can just have oh here's this experience, but it's it's ecological. It's it depends on its ecology for its meaning and where where it will take us. Absolutely. Which uh, you were in the uh, Soto lineage or? Yeah, Soto. Uh, it was Shasta Abbey. Okay. Kenneth Roshi. Okay. All right. All right. And um, so, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting is because I love this, uh, the, the, um, the book that I read most recently, as I said, is The Soul of the Prophecy. And all the things that you're saying are, are I think, so important, um, b- both here and also as they relate there, because you're uh, inviting us to, first of all, turn to our own traditions, our own lineage. Uh, I mean, mine's not uh, Jewish, but of course, many of us have been influenced by the overall tradition of the Bible. And um, making this really wonderful case of the resonance between these experiences. I I, I don't know uh, that particular lineage, but I was surprised at the ways in which your, uh, however they were working with Buddhist philosophy, it it didn't seem to... um, 
to characterize well the tradition as a whole, in the sense that uh, in the Buddhist tradition, some of the things that we're talking about are, they're really evident, like that uh, uh, relational, well, f- of course, I would say that relationality seems to be the, the, the final goal and the final state is somehow this weird experience of being relational with everything at the same time. But, um, but for instance, that there is uh, a, a lot of interaction with uh, other beings. I think I, I mentioned this in the email, initial email I sent to you, that there, there's, of course, prophecy, um, and there is, of course, the interaction with, with different beings who can give you teachings, uh, and that that's imp- all taken to be very important. And then there's the sense in which, um, <clears throat> in a way, uh, the, the, what you are describing as uh, maybe the qualities of God seem to be the qualities of Buddhahood. So on on all those levels, I I I, I just I wonder if you is it is it the that particular tradition or had you have have you had much chance to look at the the sort of prophetic traditions in in Buddhist philosophy? And well, these- you know, by prophecy, I don't mean prediction or foretelling. I mean any spiritual experience as articulated in the Bible that occurs. Oh yes. Oh, I I agree with you that you don't mean prediction. Mm-hmm. But so, for instance, because so, like I, I'm just taking like one example. We we've just been talking a lot about bringing back information. Okay, so something that would actually be helpful for how people live their lives and how their community could function. To the extent that Buddha had some kind of uh, experience, does it qualify as prophetic uh, under those terms? Like if we just say, well, it should, it should be. And it seems that he came back with this entire, incredible, uh, uh, detailed description of mind and practices we can use to touch the nature of mind and to cultivate our mind, to cultivate compassion, insight, concentration. So he comes back with an incredible amount of information. Like if there's anything that's information thick, it seems like the Buddhist mystical experience must have been, his particular experience must have been, and then other people in the lineages who had experiences like that. But then I'm also thinking of people like, say, uh, uh, Tsongkhapa, who is one of the most important uh, uh, philosophers in the Tibetan tradition. And one of his main teachers was a bodhisattva, so like a kind of non-normal being. You know, Manjushri uh, was a crucial teacher for him, and he's not the only one. So there, there, are the, there are these ways in which other entities are real. They come, they give you teachings that seem very similar, uh, that there is real information that's brought forward for your development and also affecting your community. Well, you know, the main, at least ostensible difference uh, with Buddhism is that it does not believe in one God. Um, and, you know, that is the definition of the prophetic lineage in the Bible is that it's communication between God and man. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it isn't a understanding of the nature of mind, but it's understanding of or it's a you know, communication between, you know, humans and the one God, you know, who is external, uh, you know, to us. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know that's a uh, you know major you know conceptual difference um, with respect you know to the bodhisattvas. Um, you know, even if they were divine, in as much as you know they act as intermediaries between an incorporeal god and the corporeal universe, uh, they're still only intermediaries. Uh, they're kind of foot soldiers or emissaries or you know delegates or you know diplomats. 
you know, they're not, um, you know, uh, they're not the most high. Um, and <clears throat> if they're not, you know, teaching about the most high, in other words, God, you know, then, you know, one could, you know, you know, reasonably argue if, you know, one were, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, I guess, you know, pious, uh, you know, follower of the you know, biblical tradition, you, you could even, you know, refer to them as uh, demonic, you know, diabolic, you know, because if, you know, they're not, you know, um, if, you know, they're not, you know, conveying information from the one God, then they're, uh, you know, they're false, you know, they're deceptive. Yeah. You know, that's not to say, you know, that I believe that, uh, you know, Buddhism is, you know, diabolic or deceptive, but still it's, it is a different, you know, it's a different model. Oh, it is uh, a different model. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's a different model, you know, based on, you know, different, uh, you know, fundamental assumptions. Um, you know, the Buddha had an experience, but, you know, the Buddha's experience is totally unlike the prophetic experience in the Bible. Um, you know, the Buddha's experience, like as you were describing, you know, provided um, a guide line or a you know, guidebook or a handbook or a you know, model for you know living your life interacting with the world um, but it did not come from God it came from the Buddha or it came from the intercession of you know, various you know spiritual beings uh, but um, you know I think it's more uh, well you know the you know, tradition I studied Buddhism under was kind of bare bones, you know, Zen, you know, Soto Zen, yeah. Dogen, you know, Dogen, uh, you sit with your back straight, you have your tongue lightly behind the back of your top teeth. Um, yeah, it's you know, very, you know, realistic, uh, uh, you know, reality oriented. And, um, you know, the emphasis, uh, isn't on anything flashy. It isn't on anything imaginative. It's on a clear understanding of the nature of reality. Um, and uh, anything else other than that, at least within the you know, tradition I studied, was a distraction. Oh, uh, yeah. you know, visions were a distraction. You know, voices were a distraction. Um, anything other than um, you know, Kensho you know, the, you know, formless experience of shunyata, you know, was a distraction. Um, you know, so if, for example, I were, you know, studying within, you know, Vajrayana, you know, the Tibetan uh, you know, tradition where there's, you know, visualizations and whatnot, um, I may have approached uh, the, you know, psychedelic experience uh, and the, you know, religious experience in, you know, general, um, you know, from a different, uh, you know, flooring or, you know, uh, you know, platform, you know, but as it were, or, you know, amass things, you know, were, um, you know, the tradition and the study and, you know, the model and uh, the practice that I brought to bear uh, on, you know, my work, you know, was, you know, Kensho, Satori, uh, you know, the enlightenment experience um, as the, uh, the, uh, you know, the structure, you know, the approach, uh, which I you know, brought to bear on, you know, my DMT work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because, 
you know, Shinyata is empty. Uh, it didn't comport with, uh, you know, the DMT experience, which was, you know, full of content. It, um, it was anything, uh, you know, but empty. But don't you find um, so that, that that's... You know, led me to, you know, turn to, uh, you know, tradition, which, you know, valued the, you know, content, uh, you know, full uh, yes. experience. But isn't that in a way, I mean, this is to me seems to me one of the things that happens with these traditions in general, but because, of course, that would be like saying that the Heart Sutra was only telling, it, it, it had half half the truth and half a lie, because, of course, you have to see that form is emptiness, but you have to see that emptiness is form. I mean, the thing that I'm looking for here, though, because I, what I, I just want to emphasize, I think it was, it, it seems to me, I don't want to speak for you, I think it was really great that it turned out that you got to go back to your own lineage and discover all this really awesome stuff. I mean, I, I'm i just looking for a way in which to say that maybe there's more common ground there, that, of course, it's a different model. But, for instance, I was thinking about one Buddhist uh, philosopher, or, you know, like a Buddhist uh, monastic, actually, who he was talking to a Christian monk, and uh, the Christian monk was, uh, you know, saying, talking about, you know, his th- tradition, and the, and the Buddhist was saying, well, you know, we're, it's really incompatible, though, isn't it? You know, I mean, I feel like we're friends and everything. And he said, well, w- what's incompatible? And he said, well, we believe in shunyata. And he asked him, well, describe, you know, what is it? What's what's supposed to be the what shunyata about? And after hearing it, the Christian monk said, well, said, how do you know that that's not God? And it seems it's interesting to me, for instance, also that say people like Thich Nhat Han, he's not the only one, but but he was really uh, well known for having many uh, Jews, Christians, Muslims in his community because they felt that what he was teaching was a way for them to have that relationship with God, that this was the way. And then the final thing, it just seems that there's this weird way in which uh, when you look, especially at the Mahayana and the Zen, I know that this happens in American Zen, but it's like nobody wants to read the Avatamsaka Sutra or something, because like that's well within Mahayana, Vimalakirti, um, uh, Avatamsaka. These are really psychedelic texts, and it is right. clear that these other beings are there. And I think the weird part about it is that it, maybe it's a little uncomfortable for us as Westerners, but really when you look at your descriptions of God and you look at the descriptions of Buddha, I kind of have a hard time telling them. I don't understand what's the difference. The Buddha is clearly no longer just a kind of ordinary human, but has the same characteristics. So in the Vatamsaka Sutra, it's clear that Buddha pervades all time and all space. Buddha is all-knowing. Buddha is omnipotent, but won't force anything. So all the Buddhas do is kind of keep making these openings for you to do the right thing and to maybe evolve and so on, but they can't; they won't force you to do the, the right thing. So anyway, those. I'm just trying to say that it seems like there's maybe a lot of common ground, even though... I think it's really awesome that you didn't go in the Buddhist story. I mean, I think that like worked out for the best, in my opinion. But I just wanted to see, say that, to say that I think there's a lot more common ground than maybe Soul of Prophecy indicates. Well, I mean, I would take the opposite approach, and I'd say there's no common ground. <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know Chabad, uh, you know Rabbi Schneerson, you know the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh-huh. Uh, I just read a biography of him last month or the month before, and he said, "Avoid interfaith dialogue." Um, he said it's going to be the death of Judaism, you know, because interfaith, you know, dialogue is intended to convert Jews to the belief that Judaism is like any other religion, and uh, you know, in the Bible, um, it says a nation alone. Uh, you know, so um, 
you know, the whole phenomenon. Doesn't that sound a little sad? (laughs) I don't want you guys to be in a nation. Because you can, I I mean, that seems like such a strong, uh, interfaith dialogue could just say that we can live, get along together and appreciate each other's unique traditions without saying that they're the same. I mean, I think like, for instance, this was, this is like a, maybe a problem with Western consciousness, right? Because the, I've read many indigenous elders who have said things like, you know, well, when the when they when the people Christians came and tried to convert us, and there's there are records of this, is that the 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 the, the uh, missionaries would teach them things, and the indigenous people would say, oh yeah, we believe that, that's great, and they thought, oh, that means you really you believe it, like we mean it's the one and only truth, and they just said, no, I mean we do our thing, you can do your thing, we absolutely believe what you're saying, it sounds really wonderful, you know, that you'll be a good person, and you know, there's this spirit helping you and all that. Why couldn't it be that? Why would we have to be alone? Why couldn't we just respect each other's kind of uniqueness and still say, well, we have, we can stand on common ground, you know, we're, we're beings who are... Well, I mean, you tell me, you know, why have the Jews been so incredibly, you know, persecuted through the millennia? Yeah, well, indigenous people too here for hundreds of years, you know, why, why I mean, I, I admit that we have difficulties, yes, I mean, there are problems, but but is it is it would the direction be better to to look for this kind of cooperation and mutual reverence, and to say that that's what we haven't so far developed, or would it be to say well we shouldn't have interfaith dialogue because we should stand alone? It seems kind of a lonely way to do it. Uh, no, on the contrary, there's the community. Uh, you know, there's you know the you know, community uh, of people alone. I mean. <laughs> I know, but um, I mean, okay, let's say tribal then. Like, it's a way of saying, like, we could still, we could be one family who, okay, some people in our family like to pray this way and some people in our family pray that way, but we really feel we're one family. You know, like my sister doesn't have the same spiritual life that I do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to differentiate between belief and action. Okay. Um, you know, Spinoza was pretty clear in his Tractatus, you know, that the church regulates belief. And the state regulates action. Okay. You know, so if we all want to get along, that's fine. If we all want to be charitable, that's fine. But when it comes to issues of belief, uh, that I think is where it gets um, to be problematic. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's completely, you know, fine for people to believe things that are extremely different than other people's belief. As long as we get along, as as you know, long as you know, you know, the society um, is working you know together peacefully, you know, the, the whole issue of you know Jews and Eastern religion, um, I think, is a peculiar one, you know, um, and uh, yeah, well, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at the Marin, uh, you know, TEDx um, about you know psychedelics, uh, and my prophecy book had you know come out a few years before and uh i was you know looking at you know, s- you know some of the you know tedx uh, you know talks and i stumbled upon one by you know joan halifax and you know she was talking about compassion um and uh you know so i spoke with the organizer of the of you know the marin tedx and i said well you know, I could talk about psychedelics, but I want to, you know, talk about, you know, my new book, which, you know, veers into how the Hebrew Bible is relevant to the, you know, know, contemporary psychedelic experience. And he said, well, that's not going to go over well. (laughs) And and I said, why not? And he said, well, you're going to be talking about religion. 
and I said, well, you know, Joan Halifax was, you know, just on stage, you know, talking as a you know, Buddhist Roshi about compassion, which is, uh, you know, it isn't, uh, you know, you could call it scientific, uh, but, you know, she isn't coming at it you know, as a scientist. And I say, you know, what's the difference between your know, Judaism and Buddhism? And he said, well, you know, Buddhism is a philosophy. It's not a religion. And he said, you know, most of the people in you know, the audience are going to be Buddhists, you know, in, I'm in Marin County. And I said, most of them are Jews uh, who call themselves Buddhists. Yeah, because, you know, Spirit Rock is there, right? And Jack Cornfield, you know, uh, Joseph Goldstein. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, so... You know, they're, you know, they're not Jewish, you know, they're Buddhist, and they would have a hard time with me, you know, talking about God and the Bible, uh, because it's, you know, religious. And I just said, I don't think we're a good match. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it was an interesting experience, you know, to distill, you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, the Jews who have thrown their hat in the rink with Eastern religions are anti-Jewish. They are self-hating Jews. They don't want to associate with being Jewish. And it's like, I'm not Jewish, I'm Buddhist. Um, but, you know, tell that, you know, to the next, you know, group of, you know, of, you know, whomever who uh, are you know, going to say, well, well, it's, you know, like the Germans and the Jews, you know, before, you know, World War II. You know, like everybody was saying, well, you know, we're not really Jews, we're Germans. And they said, well, you know, look at your nose and, you know, look at the shape of your head and look at your grandparents and all that. So um, I think, you know, to disavow your Judaism, to, uh, you know, say I'm really not Jewish, I'm Buddhist, I, I think is a weird thing. Um, I, I think it's a bit... It's a bit psychopathological, as it were, if not, you know, spiritually, you know, destructive. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's a terrible experience that you had, and of course, the the history there. I mean, so many, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's really unfortunate, and I still wonder if the way to help that, a good medicine for that, would be more dialogue. I mean, in you know, in the sense that again, there's like. It seems to me that there's a viable common ground in which we don't have to um, reject each other's practices or anything like that. But, you know, like the Dalai Lama's been another good example of that, Thich Nhat Hanh too, but where they've really, really resisted converting people. Like the Dalai Lama's told, you know, like had this kind of longstanding uh, um, imperative to not convert people to Buddhism, to to res let them let people have their own tradition and encourage them. And if there's anything in Buddhist tradition that could support that, that's great. You know, again, and some people have found that to be true. But that, like, for so I know that I have read accounts of people studying with Thich Nhat Hanh and saying, "I've never felt more Jewish in my life." And it became like a, a, a kind of a, 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 a reborn, a rebirthing. Well, you know, Judaism is not a feeling. Yeah, it's a set of beliefs. Well, but what uh, I mean is, I'm just talk I'm addressing it just to that part where you were saying a person is rejecting their tradition, right? And what I'm saying is that the opposite of what you just said was a problem, like being a self-hating Jew and saying I'm not a Jew, I'm a Buddhist. And here I'm saying that some people have gone to a, a, a skilled Buddhist teacher and said, "Well, you know what? I'm not a Buddhist. I'm a Jew." And so it's the exact opposite thing. I am a Jew. That's right. I'm a Jew, and that seems like that's that's a valuable thing. 
Well, you could say you're a Jew, and that may not really mean anything. I, okay. I mean, you know, what do you believe? <laughs> yeah. And you know, how yeah. do you act? Sure, sure. But assuming, I'm just trying to say, suggest, isn't it possible that the very thing that you were, I, I'm, I'm just addressing that, that very specific point of, instead of saying, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Buddhist, these were people who apparently were saying, well, you know what, I thought I was coming here with that attitude that Rick Strassman just expressed, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Buddhist, but I discovered, you know what, no, I don't want to say that. I, 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 want, I want to, to be a Jew. That's what I, I, I want to live, I want to live mm-hmm. a, a good Jewish life. Well, the proof would be in the pudding, of it course, seems to of me. Course. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can have an experience around a charismatic teacher. Yeah. And, you know, then what happens? I mean, you go, it's like, you know, going into, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you know, Judaism is not experience, Judaism is a feeling. Uh, you know, Judaism is, uh, you know, you're the, uh, uh you're a descendant. You're of you know the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you know Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Yeah. Um, you know, so you need to you know dig into that. Um, yeah. You know, what does that mean? What are the beliefs? What are the practices? You know, I think uh, you know if people get along, that's fine. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, I think uh, to uh, exchange. Uh, or to do interfaith, you know, dialogue about ideas and about beliefs. I think, uh, yeah, you know, I'm in a minority in this case, but I, I think it's unhealthy. Yeah. Um, at least it's, uh, you know, it's not kosher, uh, you know, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Schneerson, it, it was interesting, you know, to read about Schneerson, you know, because, I mean, this whole thing about interfaith dialogue and we share these things in common, um, you know, that's, you know, fine and good, but, uh, I don't think there's any need for it as long as people just respect each other and don't kill each other for, you know, you know, believing, you know, something different. You'll never see the Jews, you know, killing each other or, you know, killing other people for different beliefs. Um, you know, it's not really in the, in the cards. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think, again, we need to distinguish between beliefs and actions. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's where I stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So does that mean that a lot of what you're, of what you're saying would really only apply to to people who are Jewish and would like to practice uh, with with uh, a psychedelic or holotropic medicine, that that's the best case scenario for presenting. Uh, no, no. Um, you know, in my prophecy book, um, I only am attempting to educate. Okay. Uh, you know, that's the main you know uh, you know function of the book is to introduce an alternative model yeah you know to the one of the universal religion based on a unitive mystical ego dissolving state yeah um you know the, i don't believe there is a universal you know religious experience which underlies all the major traditions 
Uh, you know, that's a belief that, you know, came out of, you know, Vedanta, Swami Vivekananda, William James, the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in the 1890s is, you know, this notion of a universal religion is not, you know, it's a specific religion. It's, you know, Vedanta. Um, you know, so, um, you know, what happens if you don't believe in the universal religion? You yeah. know, that can be a problem. So, uh i think to to claim anything is universal um you know you know what if you don't believe it you know does that mean you're a, a non-believer you know um have you become the enemy are you gonna you know kill off everybody who doesn't believe in your universal religion yeah. um you know so i i think we need to be you know modest and uh you know look at other your religions as as you know just as valid as a you know so-called universal you know religion you know so in the prophetic states book i'm just um you know kind of providing an alternative view yeah to what seems to be the you know the meme out there that uh that you know psychedelics you know somehow reveal the existence of a universal religion um i don't think that's the case uh -huh. um and i think you know in the whole conflating of you know religious experience with you know the psychedelic one i guess you know prompted me as much as anything to write the book um because i don't think you know science and you know religion are that you know good you know, bedmates, as it were. Um, I think, uh, you know, to conflate spirituality and, you know, clinical research, um, it kind of opens up a can of worms because, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, to, yeah, it's, you know, different vocabulary, different belief systems, uh, you know, different way of experiencing truth. Um, you know, one is through, uh, you know, scientific experiments and, you know, the other is through experience or through tradition or through, uh, you know, ex experiments, you know, so there's, you know, two other ways of attaining, uh, you know, to knowledge within, you know, religious, uh, you know, traditions other than just, you know, scientific deduction, um, you know, so for, you know, scientists to say there's one universal religion it's like, no, that's really not true. You know, that's a, a matter of belief. And it's, you know, based on Christianity or Vedanta or some, you know, new age, you know, uh, uh, you know, schmas of you know, beliefs. You know, so if you're going to, you know, say that, you know, psychedelics reveal a universal you know, religion, I took umbrage. And I said, well, you know, there are other, you know, ways um, of looking at spirituality is viewed through the lens of the psychedelic experience. I'm not saying it's, you know, better. I'm not encouraging people to, you know, do anything or, you know, the others to like, at least, you know, look at your own tradition, uh, you know, look at the, you know, text that underlies Western civilization um, and, and, you know, see if there's, you know, something in there, you know, that appeals to you, you know, more than uh, what you're being, uh, you know, fed right now uh, from, uh, you know, clinical spirituality uh, advocates. Um, you know, so, you know, whether or not the prophetic view, the Hebrew biblical prophetic view is superior or not, 
You know, I think it's, you know, to each his own. Uh, you know, if you want to study the Hebrew Bible, you know, do it. But, you know, don't dispense with it as irrelevant or, um, you know, genocidal or patriarchal or, uh, you know, fleshly, you know, leading to death kind of, you know, Christian stuff. Um, you know, you can... Uh, you can make up your own mind. Uh, you you can get more information. You could learn more. You can develop your rational faculty, and then you know, make a decision like, oh, you know, this seems more attractive. This resonates with me better, and then you know, take it from there. I mean, you might want to convert to Judaism, you know, for all I know, uh, or you might just want to use what I am talking about in that prophetic states book, you know, to enlarge the discussion about what the psychedelic experience means and you know how it can be used. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the th interesting ideas there, and I don't know if you <clears throat> talk about it in your new book, but you. There's an interesting uh, reversion where we have seen in the literature uh, neurotheology, and that would be this. Uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll, you could go ahead and describe that and and describe your reversion of that, the theoneurology, the difference between those two. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, neurotheology is kind of uh, you know the reigning paradigm of uh, you know the science of spirituality. Um, you know, spiritual experiences are, uh, you know, called that um, after, you know, the fact of a particular kind of experience, which is a brain reflex. Uh, if you meditate, if you take psychedelics, if you fast, you know, various, you know, things which stimulate a brain reflex. Um, you know, so it's your brain on drugs, it's your brain giving you the, uh, you know, giving you the impression of you know connecting with a spiritual level of reality, um, you know. So that's what I call you know the bottom up you know model. Um, and you know DMT is you know released for example you know like endogenous DMT uh, as a result of you know let's say you meditate or you pray, and so after the fact you then you know call that spiritual because it's unique. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, so what's, you know, the value or, you know, why does that happen? Well, you know, the biological, you know, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, biological, uh, you know, preeminence, which is assumed in that model, uh, would state it has evolutionary advantages. Uh, you're more compassionate, you're more empathic, increases creativity, you know, sociality, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it bestows an evolutionary advantage, uh, you know, to have those kinds of experiences for the brain to be hardwired that way. You know, the top-down model is what I call the you know, theoneurological model, which states, you know, you know, that it's configured in such a manner as uh, uh, to allow, uh, you know, external uh, you know, level of spiritual reality to God, the divine, what have you. Uh, you know, so, you know, DMT is the means of the divine manifesting spiritual information in a visual you know, manner, let's say. Um, you know, so it's, you know, kind of stands the first, you know, bottom up you know, model on its head. Right. Um, you know, the brain's configured in order to allow divine communication as opposed to the brain is configured to give the impression 
That's right. Uh, yeah, divine communication. I love that reversal. It's really a re- really cool uh, reversal. And of course, uh, you see this in the community. This has been an idea, loosely speaking. You you put a really nice precision on it. This idea that the brain is a receiver rather than a producer, right? That's the kind of more general that different people have used for quite some time now. But this is really lovely right. that that the divine made the, the spirit molecule as a way, and made the brain uh, in such a way that they could the divine could use this to communicate with us, which is a really cool uh, uh, way to put it. I love that. Yeah, and if you look at it that way, um, you know, then, you know, the contents of the stimulated imagination contain divine information. Right. Um, and, you know, then, you know, it isn't quite the evolutionary adv- um, advantage approach. It's like, you know, this is the information that God would like us to know. And, you know, some of it you know, may not be obviously evolutionarily advantageous. You know, like, you know, the law of the red heifer, for example, in Numbers, I think, or Leviticus, um, you know, it, you know, the ashes of the uh, burnt red fire uh, people have been contaminated by contact with the dead, but they contaminate, you know, the person who is in contact with the ashes. You know, so what's, you know, the evolutionary advantage of that information? I mean, God only knows, right? Um, you know, so it isn't, you know, that it's evolutionarily advantageous information that comes up uh you know during a spiritual experience uh it's the information that god wants us to know right for future reference to our obedience you know any number of things but they're not uh you know uh you know they're not obvious or you know they're not as obvious as for example uh increasing compassion or empathy yeah, yeah. And so is there, do you discuss that model in the context of just giving? Is that a, do you find that just a useful idea as a general orientation? Because when you talk about set and setting, of course, and learning being part of that, the ecology, I mean, that's a vision of the cosmos that a person could, could bring to say that, okay, this molecule, I'm not just having a brain experience. Um, but but that uh, this this molecule is is putting me in contact with reality. There's something that's intending itself through me. Well, I discussed that a lot in the prophetic states book, you know, that, um, you know, you need to distinguish whether or not, you know, the visions and the voices are just, you know, coming from you or are they, uh, you know, divinely inspired. Uh, And, you know, the main way of distinguishing is if, you know, the information contained in the visions and the voices is consistent with the teaching and the Hebrew, you know, text, which is one God and the golden rule. Um, I don't discuss that in the new book, uh, you know, the uh, you know, psychedelic handbook. I, I, you know, stay clear of, you know, Jewish uh, you know, teachings in the, you know, psychedelic handbook. Um, I you know, bring in the you know, the medieval uh, you know, metaphysics, and I discuss the discrimination against a Jewish model uh, in the handbook. But um, I don't really you know go into you know what are Jewish you know teachings per se. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you also mentioned uh, you did a translation and commentary of Genesis, and then you also mentioned some stories. I think you said drug and alcohol <laughs> stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, those are future books. Well, yeah, well, you know, because this is audio only. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been working on, uh, on, you know, my own translation of the Hebrew into English of Genesis um, and a commentary, which is, you know, based on all of the, you know, commentaries I've been, you know, reading over the last couple of decades. Um, yeah, it's, up, you know, there's, you know, 50 chapters in Genesis. I think I'm up to chapter you know, 45 now, and it's over a thousand pages. Uh, so it's going to be hard to find a publisher, uh, but, but still I'm, you know, chipping away at it. Um, yeah, you know, because, you know, I think the book of Genesis is all you really need. You know, there's, you know, there's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, um, and Deuteronomy, you know, but those are all mosaic or, you know, post-mosaic, um, you know, Moses. Uh, and, and I think if you, you know, model your, you know, life, um, after the lives of the characters in the Hebrew, in the book of Genesis, I think strictly speaking, you know, that's all you really need to know. Uh, you know, Philo, uh, you know, discussed, you know, the law and he said the law is only a, uh, a codification of the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, uh, you know, so, you know, they lived a you know, fully prophetic life, you know, without the law being written down. You know, so I th- I think if you really bore down on the narratives in the book of Genesis, uh, you're pretty far along on you know, living a prophetic life or a life, you know, that's, you know, modeled on a you know, prophetic life. Uh, you know, like Abraham, I mean, I mean he was, you know, in, uh, you know, quite the individual. He spoke with God, God spoke to him. You know, he you know, pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. He argued with his nephew Lot, and they you know, separated. He told stories about you know Sarah, you know, being his sister. Uh, he obtained a you know, burial ground for Sarah and his descendants. You know, so I think if you you know really look you know carefully at those narratives, you will learn a lot about human nature. You'll you know learn a lot about you know how you know to relate to other humans. You'll learn a lot about you know how to relate to God. Uh, so, you know that's why I've been you know focusing on Genesis um, as much as I have. Uh, you know the other material that you mentioned. You know the drug and alcohol uh, stories. You know I've you know taken lots of drugs and I have gotten drunk a few times, especially some crazy you know drunken episodes in college. And I've always been into journaling. I mean, I like to write and I've, you know, taken, you know, notes on all these experiences over the years. And I've got a huge, you know, pile of these, you know, trip notes. Um, and uh, I would, and I would like to get them into print. Uh, so I, I actually, you know, just met an agent a week or so ago and we were strategizing about, you know, how to get that you know, material out there. Uh, 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 you know, should it be another installment in the life um, of Joseph Levy, uh, you know, which is you know, my alter ego in the book, you know, uh, you know, Joseph Levy escapes death. You know, that's an account of a year of you know, poor health in a small, you know, southwest town and a couple of, you know, failed relationships that you know, kind of, you know, devolve from being so sick. Um, 
you know, so it's you know, fairly bleak, but you know, fairly uh, you know, humorous at the same time. Uh, and uh, you know, we were and and um, when I you know, met with his agent last week or the week before, you know, we were talking about well. Uh, you know, should it be, you know, like a memoir or another, you know, fictionalized autobiographical account? And, you know, he was, you know, kind of lobbying, uh, you know, for a you know, memoir. You know, so I would, you know, be selective about the, you know, sessions or experiences I recount because otherwise the names and the dates and the places would be, uh, you know, too easily recognizable. Um, and there'd be a major target on my back from those I'm, you know, discussing or describing my interactions with. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I I think I'm pretty maxed out on writing about psychedelics. Uh, like I wrote The Spirit Molecule, it's really done well. It's inspired a you know, generation of students, you know, researchers, academics, philosophers, spiritual seekers, uh, you know, lay, you know, lay interested people. You know, the prophetic book, you know, the prophetic states book, that took me 18 years to write. Uh, I had to reteach myself, you know, biblical Hebrew, you know, read 15, 20 commentaries, uh, you know, call upon the expertise of a modern Orthodox rabbi and a medieval you know, philosophy professor. Uh, and I've written, you know, like the, you know, scientific or, you know, the psychedelic handbook. And uh, like I was going over the galley proofs this morning. And it's like, I have nothing more to say. You know, I'm just you know, saying it in this book and uh, everything else will just be, you know, kind of superfluous. Uh, yeah, you know, so I'm strategizing the next things I want to write. I mean, I turned, you know, 70 last month. Um, I'm feeling more of a need to get my legacy out there. Um, I don't have the you know, biological children. I don't work at a university and have students in that, you know, uh, kind of context you know so uh i think i you know need to get you know more books out so i'm wondering what more books you know um am i going to write you know so i think you know my you know take on the book of genesis will be a major contribution and uh you know just you know accounts you know from my life you know what has happened to me in my life you know what you know sense have i made of it uh, you know, keep a sense of humor about it, but, you know, don't, uh, you know, censor things at the same time. So, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that I'll be, you know, working on, God willing, for the next 20 years. Aha, uh -huh. that's wonderful. Well, that part of the, the your legacy that you feel, in written form at least, feels really complete, the psychedelic part of it, where would you, where would you be, I don't know, uh, pleased excited inspired hopeful that th that current goes you know like if you were to have some sense of oh after all that work i did and i put it all down on pages this is what i would really hope could happen with psychedelics and this is what i'm worried might happen instead i don't know well i think with any you know powerful you know technology <clears throat> there's you know two major uh, you know, dangers, you know, one is, you know, fundamentalism. Uh, and uh, the universal mystical unitive, you know, model is in, is in danger of becoming a, you know, fundamentalistic creed. Um, and I think that's a danger. Uh, because if you don't 
believe in it, you're in the crosshairs of those who do. Uh, you're not enlightened enough. You haven't tripped enough, you know, those kinds of ideas. Um, you know, the other is, you know, the commercialization aspect that people are just going to want to, you know, cash in uh, on a powerful tool. Um, and there's some uh, you know, danger inherent in that. Um, a few years back, um, I read a you know, novel by you know, P.K. Dick. It's called The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. It's a very horrible, terrifying book. Uh, it's about the competition between you know, two psychedelics. You know, one is Terran, as you made on Earth. And uh, it puts people into this you know, fantasy land. Uh, perky pat um, where you know, people get real small and they go into these dollhouses with these little figurines and they move stuff around and perky pat in her life and her you know it's you know like a barbie doll on acid and everybody's into it um, you know the other is this you know drug from another star system and it's totally weird you don't know if you're tripping or not and if you've come down you start tripping again or you're not really sure you know, so, you know, there's this, this like, you know, battle between which, you know, psychedelic is the Earth's, you know, population going to be buying and taking and why and what are the, you know, the, uh, you know, consequences. Um, you know, I don't think we're quite, you know, there yet, but uh, it's a cautionary tale about where, you know, psychedelics unbound might, you know, possibly lead us. Uh, when they're com- commercialized on a you know worldwide level, yeah. What about on the positive? Where, where, what is your hope, or you know, where would you be like, oh goodness, I'd be so excited or so mm-hmm. happy? Yeah. Uh huh. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, the positive uh, streams or the you know, positive directions, you know, those are being utilized. They're being studied, exploited. Uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of pursued. Uh, you know, you know, to alleviate suffering, uh, there's a lot of conditions out there which we don't have very good uh, you know, treatments for, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know clinical syndromes, uh, which we don't have much in the way of effective you know, treatments for, or at least, you know, not as wide or, you know, broad spectrum as they could be. Um, you know, so, you know, to alleviate suffering for sure. Um you know, to increase wellness, uh, if, you know, psychedelics can improve your meditation, your prayer, um, your capacity to, you know, uh, you know, cease from evil, do good and, you know, do good from other, uh, you know, for others, I'm all for that. Um, you know, creativity and aesthetics, uh, you know, those are, I guess, you know, wellness enhancement or, uh, uh, you know, hedonic um, enhancement, what, you know, Jonathan Ott likes to call, uh, you know, ludibund uh, use of psychedelics. It just in, uh, increased pleasure. Um, you know, so that's an important uh, function or, you know, can be. Um, you know, I think, you know, scientifically, uh, you know, mechanistically, I think, you know, psychedelics are going to, you know, shed light on the placebo response. Um, and uh, we construct reality and our personality put together. You know, if you look at the you know literature, both you know academic and lay, you know, there's a new indication or a new thing that you know psychedelics improve every month. I mean, it's astonishing. Music appreciation, nature appreciation, 
Uh, they change your metaphysical beliefs. They make you more progressive liberally. They keep you out of prison. They make your marital relationship better. Uh, they help eating disorders. They, I mean, you know, they do everything. Uh, you know, they're panaceas. And you know, panaceas, you know, work through the placebo response. Um, you know, if you believe, you know, something's going to work, uh, you know, chances are it will, especially if it has some biological effects of its own. So I think one of the things that, you know, psychedelics do is they enhance the placebo response. And the placebo response is a weird recruitment of the innate you know, healing mechanisms of the mind-body complex. Um, you know, so, you know, they operate or the placebo effect operates, it operates out of consciousness. You can, you know, see the effect of the placebo response. For example, uh, you know, placebo analgesia, it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. And it's reversed by giving an opiate blocking drug, you know, so it's you know, biologically mediated, you know, but how, you know, the placebo response uh, is actually occurring is working behind the scenes, you're unconscious of it. So um, I think, you know, psychedelics will help us, you know, bridge the gap between uh, subjective experience and, you know, biological effects. Um, you know, so, you know, the discovery of, you know, DNT you know, made in the in, you know, brain in concentrations as high as those of, uh, you know, well-known neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, you know, that's a you know, very interesting discovery. You know, like I was speculating about the, you know, pineal gland, you know, making it and, you know, that may or may not be the case, you know, you know but we do know, you know, that the brain makes, uh, you know, DMT uh, in quite high levels. Uh, you know, concentrations increase in the dying brain, uh, especially in the visual cortex, you know, so that points to a you know, potential role of DMT um, in mediating some of the properties or the characteristics of the near-death state, you know, but you've got to wonder if there are such you know, high levels of DMT in the brain, you know, comparable to serotonin, for example, you know, what is uh, the potential, you know, DMT neurotransmitter system doing in life? Well, you know, the hallmark of, uh, a, a, you know, DMT experience is the feeling that what you're witnessing is more real than real. You know, so perhaps the DMT, uh, I, I, you know, neurotransmitter system, if there, you know, does, uh, uh, you know, turn out to be one, is, you know, mediating um, our sense of reality. Um, and if concentrations increase, for example, with a particular experience or a particular belief or thought, you know, that gets, you know, cemented, that becomes, you know, part of your personality, becomes what you believe in, what, you know, resonates uh, in you is true. You know, so, you know, you could uh, start to wonder, you know, like, is, you know, who we are, uh, is our personality, is our way of interacting with the world and ourselves, you know, simply a collection of, you know, moments um, in time, which are associated with higher levels of DMT, you know, than usual, you know, than normal. 
you know, so it gets kind of weird. It gets a little bit, you know, you know, down the rabbit hole, you know, because you'd have to wonder, well, you know, what determines whether or not levels of DMT increase with X experience or, um, you know, Y, you know, uh, it isn't random, you know, so that's starts to, um, you know, lead into uh, free will determination, those kinds of questions, which I think are going to be, you know, those, those questions will be easier to study using, you know, psychedelic tools uh, because uh, they, you know, shed light on the nature of, uh, you know, conscious experience in a way that no other drugs or no other technologies do. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because what you were saying earlier, just to co- uh, connect there, that uh, if if we have a theoneurological view, then there's a way in which that these neural pathways and DMT itself were put into the brain to basically make sure that we had the circuitry for intimacy with reality. And so maybe, for instance, the placebo effect, what we're calling it, because you know, you, I, there's a way in which it blurs the line between subjective and objective, and it could be that we're able to touch the endogenous healing capacities that are just part built into the structure of reality, too, so that's another mediator, and that that, too, relates to how it shapes our sense of self, because in those moments, ideally, the DMT level went up because in some way we were getting a little more intimate with reality as opposed to, you know, beliefs, misperceptions, um, bad behavior, bad habits. I wonder, you mentioned uh, that uh, your your own uh, history of, of using drugs, you, you've, I take it you've used DMT. I don't know if I've ever heard you officially just say, oh, yes, I've used DMT. Is that something you... Yeah, I um, you know kind of came out of the you know DMT you know, closet in when was that 2019 I think uh, I was interviewed by uh, Graham Hancock I'm at a meeting in uh, Sedona Arizona and uh, you know we were talking you know before we went on and he said well you want to talk about your own drug experiences. I said, yeah, yeah, I can talk about, you know, my DMT trip with Terrence, which was the first, you know, time that I smoked DMT, you know, Terrence McKenna, 1986. Wow, how fun yeah. is that? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that experience, uh, I'm in Sedona, and I have, you know, raised it a number of times when, you know, people have asked. Um, yeah, well, you know, getting back to, you know, what triggers, you know, DMT endogenously, um, you know, um you know, that kind of question was what I used my you know, Buddhist training and study to help me get a you know, foothold on the notion of God in the first place. Um, you know, one of those, you know, one of those avenues which prompted me to feel more comfortable thinking about God was that, you know, karma is not random. You know, the law of, you know, cause and effect encourages certain beliefs and actions and discourages others, you know, so it isn't that, you know, karma is completely random, you know, cause and effect, you know, like if you kick your toe in anger, it hurts, as opposed to you kick your toe in anger, and you make a million dollars, you know, so, you know, who, uh, you know, set things up that way, or, you know, why is it set up that way? 
Um, and yeah, you know, that made me think that, well, it's, it isn't random. It's a reflection of some, you know, kind of, you know, design, um, you know, some you know, kind of intelligence, uh, you know, designed, uh, you know, karma to increase or to encourage some behavior and discourage others. You know, so, you know, that's got me thinking, well, you know, who or what designed karma? And then I thought, well, it you know, could be God. You know, there's, you know, cause and effect. There's reward and punishment. They're just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the same thing. Uh, you know, one's anthropomorphized and, you know, one is, you know, kind of, you know, uh, I guess, you know, cleansed of anthropomorphism. You know, but, you know, they describe the you know, same phenomena. You do certain things and, you know, certain things happen. Um yeah, yeah, you know, so um, if, you know, DMT goes up with certain experiences or certain uh, ideas or, you know, beliefs, you know, that is a reflection of the workings of, you know, cause and effect. Mm-hmm. You know, things are now because of how things were before. Things are in the future because of, you know, how things are now. Um, you know, so those describe the laws of cause and effect, you know, the laws of reward and punishment. Um you know, so um, I'm not sure. Well, yeah, you, you know, so it uh, you know could be that elevated levels of DMT occur you know, for a reason. Uh, yeah. Specific beliefs, experiences, ideas, uh, you know, trigger them because of the way you know the brain is designed in order to you know. Uh, come close to or, uh, you know, resonate, uh, you know, better with, um, you know, the divine, the spiritual level of reality. Right. And that means that in a way, if we did really a good job at preparation, if we really took the preparation seriously, then taking a DMT, exogenous DMT, would potentiate a possible uh, repair of bad karma. Like that could be, it's, it could be like a, a sort of, you know, a flashpoint, a karmic flashpoint where we could fundamentally improve our karmic situation um, because of that charge of DMT. If, if it happens around a real positivity of mind, a real uh, sincere and passionate quest for understanding and so on within a, a full and robust ecology of practice that we really could uh, help ourselves in our spiritual evolution yeah, I think that's true. And it, you know, it returns you know, to the notion of, you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, kind of, you know, turbo, uh, you know, charging the imagination, you know, the imaginative, you know, faculty of Aristotle, you know, there's, you know, there's new information that's in your imagination, it becomes apprehensible, uh, it's you know, perceptible, um, you know, it reveals what was you know, previously invisible. Uh, you know, but like you were saying, it uh, depends on the context. If you've been working on yourself, you know, then you know, uh, you know, how to, you know, best extract um, information from the images, uh, the visions and the voices and the feelings and, you know, the you know, flashes of insight, which uh, are displayed in the imagination, you know, through the development of, you know, the intellect, your study, your practice of an ethical life. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Henri Corbin's work, the philosopher Corbin? 
I don't think so. Because uh, what's interesting is that he he definitely worked a lot with that. What he he to distinguish um, this, uh, shall we say, spiritual connotation of the imagination, um, to distinguish it from what we might think of as mere fancy or you know imagining something uh well i just imagined god he used the the term imaginal but he worked with the importance of the imaginal in the uh islamic tradition now, obviously that's different but it might be just oh, okay. really interesting for you to see that resonance and parallel that as part of maybe as part of the abrahamic uh, tradition you know it's just it's there really strongly and f- for the same reasons you're talking about you know but he believed the imaginal was really important to the mystics and that of course in the in the islamic tradition, uh, just as it is in many other traditions, it uh, prophecy is kind of taken for granted as a sign of advanced spiritual. Um, so if you're an advanced, very, very, uh, let's say, sagely or saintly person, then it's likely that you'll have prophecy. If you have prophecy, it doesn't mean that you're saintly or sagely. It could just be that God is using you is the, is the kind of view there, as it is in other, you know, like the Buddhist tradition believes that too, that in the Buddhist tradition, of course, Buddha has all these incredible, miraculous powers, but you could have them and not be enlightened, uh, as the case of Anuruddha or, you know, many others. Right, right. Well, you know, the medieval Jewish uh, you know, philosophers, you know, were dependent um, on the Islamic philosophers. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, because, you know, the Islamic, uh, you know, folks, you know, translated Aristotle into, you know, from the Greek to the Arabic. Absolutely. And the Jews, you know, then, you know, learned about Aristotle from the Arabic. Um, yeah, and, you know, Maimonides, you know, goes on and on and on about his discussion of you know, the Arabic philosophers and their approach, you know, to prophecy. And he borrows, you know, from them a lot in his uh, thinking about the imaginative you know, faculty and you know the intellectual faculty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, there are stages on a prophecy. Um, you know, Maimonides recounts, I think, you know, ten uh, on you know, the rungs of you know, prophetic development. You know, they could just be inspiration. They can be you know, physical strength. They could be courage. They could be. Um, you know, uh, you know, creativity. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, it isn't that you need to be a you know full fledged uh, you know missionary prophet like Isaiah or Ezekiel. Um, you can have a, a you know veridical dream. I'm endowed you know by God by you know experienced by a uh, you know foreign foot soldier, for example. So I, I was just wanting to um, uh, maybe uh, touch again on the place that we began and, and, and emphasize uh, I, I, uh, again this aspect of differentiating between what we might call a spiritual experience and what we might call a visionary experience. So that way we could be, I know we, we, you wanted to be careful about um, you know interfaith dialogue or something, but I'm just thinking of for a person who's not, uh, there's, there's still so much of value in your in your in in DMT and the Soul of Prophecy and all, and your other work, and obviously it's not restricted to the Hebraic tradition. But it, what I'm trying to get at is this seems to be a real need for us to get um, to see if we can increase that informational level. A danger, in other words, that you didn't quite mention is that we, well, I mean, you touched on it. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to say that yeah, people can have very exciting experiences. They may even think that the experiences are life changing, and yet 
there is some suggestion in the wisdom traditions, and you you specifically drawing from the the Hebraic tradition, the Jewish tradition, saying that well, there there might be a lot more information that we're leaving on the table because we just we don't know how to navigate this space. Um, do you have any final thoughts about that? I mean, for me, this is just uh, as a, as a philosopher right now in the culture. This for me has become increasingly important as I have seen and talked to people about uh, psychedelic working with psychedelics. That we are um, the ecologies are too thin. The ecologies of practice are too thin, and it seems to me that um, there's a lot of spiritual materialism or spiritual bypassing that come from really exciting uh, aesthetic experiences that are not doing as much as they could in terms of informing a larger, not just even ourselves, uh, but even the larger culture in a good and skillful way. Yeah, that got me thinking about, you know, one of the qualities of the mystical experience as quantified by the mystical experience questionnaire you know, one of the criteria is ineffability, uh, which means you can't describe the experience verbally. Right. But, um, you know, just read the mystical literature is anything but ineffable. Um, and the ineffability that people refer to, you know, could be one of two things. Um, either, you know, somebody is just, you know, too lazy to think about it, uh, or they don't have the vocabulary that they otherwise, you know, might be able to bring to bear on the experience. You know, so the whole um, issue of the, uh, you know, value of ineffability, I think, might be misplaced or even, you know, kind of backwards. It, you know, may not be a, you know, positive criteria. It may not be a, you know, good thing or, uh, you know, virtue or, uh, you know, uh, a uh, boon. It, you know, you know, could be a bane because, uh you know, people just, you know, make up whatever, you know, they want to because they say, well, it's ineffable. I can't describe it with words, but, you know, it you know, may mean that I'm the Messiah or it may mean you need to give me $25,000, you know, for my retreat center. Um, you know, so I think, you know, wrapping words around the experience is quite helpful. Um, and there's no, sh- you know, shortage of, uh, you know, traditions, which, you know, verbally unpack, um, the religious experience, you know, the Jewish, um, you know, uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible one obviously is completely verbal. Um, and, um, y- you know, if you want to dig into that, you can, it's available. Um, the nonverbal traditions or n- not nonverbal traditions, but, uh, you know, traditions, which, uh, which point to a nonverbal ineffable experience as the core or the, and I think it's a more problematic because they're you know, liable to post hoc editorial uh, you know, manipulations. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that's a <laughs> that's a, uh, it's it seems to me that this is an issue that we can certainly essentially it becomes a kind of spiritual materialism as far as I can tell that you're right you you you're hiding behind the ineffability but what it meant was that the experience wasn't uh skillfully or fully metabolized and that you didn't come from an ecology of practice where you mm-hmm. you could navigate the space and 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 uh like I think even this is part of what I call the self-help catastrophe that we the culture is organized such that our healing 
will come at a cost. Talk about cause and effect, right? So it's built in that if, if you're going to have the orientation of a taker, then that means that your healing is going to come out of the larger community of life in one way or another. So we can think of, you know, an exaggerated version of that. If, if I get on a plane and go to Peru and have an ayahuasca vacation, well, you know, I mean, that oil had to come from somewhere. I, you know, I'm, I'm burning that jet fuel. It's carrying my body thousands of miles and I'm going to go use somebody else's ecology, their water, their food. I'm not going to plant anything while I'm there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know how to take from the ecologies because that's what the culture is built on, but it doesn't necessarily teach me how to give back. So there's this lack of mutuality. And, and so that can happen too, I think, in psychedelic experiences that they're oriented in such a way that, of course, we know how to take from the larger ecologies, but we're not even really giving back enough of an insight or even necessarily going in saying, I really want to open myself up to know what my community needs right now to heal and how I can heal self and world at the same time. Just even that as an intention is not necessarily widespread because there's just a lot of, I've got to do this inner work and I'm going to have the unit of experience or whatever it might be. So I just, I think these issues are so important and I really thank you for your work in trying to, because I think you're, you you really do give us a, you know, this is a case study uh, when you look at the Jewish tradition and, and I'm sure your new book is also talking about this in set and setting and, you know, trying not to fool ourselves. So I think it's all right. right. Well, you know, a, a couple of times in the course of the book, I kind of apologize for not glorifying the psychedelic experience more than I do. Uh, but um, I think that's my responsibility, you know, to the field is, you know, you know, to not to you know glorify potential benefits or to minimize, you know, potential risks. So, um, you know, it may not be as popular as more, you know, kind of. Uh, you know, flashy presentations of the psychedelic scene, uh, but uh, I a lot more. Uh, it's you know, it's just more grounded in uh, experience, um, and uh, yeah, I'm under no illusions that you know that these are panaceas. I mean, you, you know, they can be used for ill. Uh, I you know, bring up you know Charles Manson at least once, maybe twice. I think my editor said you've already brought up Charles Manson once. Don't don't bring him up again. Um, and you know the neo Nazis. You know the Hell's Angels were the major purveyors of LSD in the Bay Area back in the sixties. Wow. You know, so it isn't as if you know psychedelics are all love and light. Um, yeah, they need to be structured. The experience needs to be structured. Needs to be prepared for. It needs to be. You know, carefully observed. Uh, it needs to be integrated. It needs you know, peer review. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't want to go off you know half cocked or uh, become you know susceptible to you know, you know crazy ideas. Right, and I think that too is where um, you know the the people. I, I really value that. You know, the fact that we we need to be aware of the ways in which the, the the strength of this experience could make us think that we understand more than we do or that we've changed more than we have. And that you see this in all the spiritual traditions have these cases of figures who think that they're all that and they have to they have to learn the lesson that they're not. The lesson of humility, the lesson of the limits of human uh, understanding and our fallibility, and also just, yeah, this holistic practice and being really realistic and not deceiving ourselves. So I really appreciate that part of your work. And uh, you know, when the book comes out, maybe we can talk again. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Um, yeah, I mean, if all goes well, it should be coming out in June. Um, you can already buy it on Amazon. So um, the Psychedelic Handbook. Yeah, so um, 
Yeah, I think we you know covered a lot of you know, territory today. Um, anything else I want to kind of say before we wrap up? Uh, uh, yeah, I guess you know uh, you know take your life seriously. Uh, yeah, uh, you know um, you know there's this you know notion out there that you shouldn't take your life that seriously. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I think, you know, this is all, as far as we know, this is all we've got, you know, this is all we're going to have. So I think it requires the utmost, uh, you know, seriousness to make the most of the opportunity we've been given. So, you know, if you're going to, you know, trip, I mean, you want to make the most of your experiences. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Take your life seriously, the preciousness of, of this life and whether, you know, Socrates would, would say that too, you know, if, if you go on and there's, there's something after, then, then it would have made a big difference if you lived well. It couldn't possibly be that it wouldn't make any difference whatsoever as far as he was concerned. And if it didn't, well, then, you know, you still lived a good life. Like if you, you die and there's either nothing or you find out that it didn't matter, well, nevertheless, it can, there's, there can't be any, anything, anything lost. And there's much gain by living our lives as passionately as we can and as well as ethically, skillfully. So thank you for your work, Rick Strassman. And thanks to all of you for your practice of life. Now stay tuned. Because in our next contemplation, we're going to talk about the Buddha molecule. So if you have uh, read or are familiar with DMT, the spirit molecule, we're going to kind of combine and twist up the titles and uh, think about the Buddha molecule, DMT, and the heart and soul of visionary love wisdom. And it's a respectful counterpoint to Rick's views. In contrast to what Rick has said in this dialogue and in his book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, we will consider the ways in which Buddhist philosophy offers a precious handbook for navigating psychedelic experiences and how Buddhist philosophy itself is psychedelic and how even Buddha was a kind of psychedelic presence in ways maybe you've never thought about before. But I think you'll enjoy these reflections. It doesn't matter what your philosophical orientation is. If you have any interest in these medicines, and if you have tried working with them or think you might one day, so in any case, if you don't want to work with them, but you do understand that psychedelics are interesting in what they might say about the human psyche, but I would say even more so, maybe, if you're interested in working with them, you might find a lot of helpful reflections uh, when we consider the Buddha molecule. And then we'll do some, maybe some reflections about Buddhist philosophy and then general, from my perspective as just a general philosopher, because I'm a philosopher and not a Buddhist, but I respect Buddhist philosophy, so I do want to give it a voice and give it its chance to offer us what it can to support us in our lives, and then maybe consider some other philosophical things as well. Now, in the meantime, if you have questions, comments, or stories to share related to any of these matters, Send them in through dangerouswisdom.org and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.